So 2012, uh, in Cologne, Germany, there was a court ruling. And the court ruled that parents uh, were no longer allowed to have their infants circumcised. And as you can imagine, uh, especially from the Jewish community, there was outrage uh, and there was debate. Uh, and everybody lined up on this issue. So you had doctors and lawyers on both sides. You had um, social scientists from every angle on this. And it got loud and it got frustrating and it got um, irritable. And then finally in December, actually December 12th of 2012, 12, 12, 12, um, the court ruled, I think it was uh, 434 to 100, I'm sorry, the parliament ruled 434 to 100 um, to allow parents to decide for their children um, whether or not they would, they would have them circumcised, basically keeping the rule the way that it was. But here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you are a Jew. And of course, um, as a reminder for you, if you were a Jew, circumcision is a big deal. If you were a Jew, circumcision is something um, that in Genesis 17, God mandates, okay? Uh, and, and that we know that, that the Jewish practice God mandated is uh, that male children, when they turned eight, were to be circumcised. It was part of the covenant that Jews were born into. And so this is the way that it worked. And so I want you to imagine that you're a Jew in Germany during this time, and it's time for the election. It's time to decide who you'll support, Okay? And on one side, you have a candidate who you love, who fits you perfectly. Maybe even you know them personally. You love their tax plan. You love their national defense ideas. You love everything they have to say about education and immigration and policy. And you're, you're, you're sold, except... They don't think that this circumcision thing should be allowed, that kids should be able to decide that for themselves when they get older. And then over here, you have a candidate who agrees that parents should be able to have the freedom to choose religiously circumcision for their children, but on every other, every other platform and policy, you're in staunch disagreement. I want, I want to, how, how do you think you'd vote? See, and odds are, if we were really um, Orthodox Jews, we would have to vote for this candidate. We'd have to vote for the freedom okay, to practice religion the way we would. But um, the reason I ask you to think about that is not because I think that's overly important for us. That law was, that was four years ago. That was decided. Um, that's never been an issue here, um, to my knowledge, in this country that's, that's been quite um, so hotly debated politically. But the issue is this. How do we choose? And what it all comes down to when we choose is priorities, okay? So, so here's, here's, now, we're not caucusing, okay, um, because the caucus is over, um, but this is the idea when it comes to voting. This is the call that was out when it was time to caucus. This is the thing that we drill down on is that we want you, when it's time for this, we want to vote biblically. And as Christians, there are many of us who say what we want to do is we want our Christian faith to inform our politics. And so we say things like, we won't ever compromise because we want our Christian faith, our biblically-based faith, to inform our politics so we can't compromise. The problem is that's just not true. 
There are literally thousands of issues and platforms. And more often than not, two choices. And so you are never going to agree wholeheartedly with a candidate that you support. In fact, what you need to remember is that most likely you're not supporting an individual. What you're supporting is issues that you feel strongly about. This is what we understand when it comes to politics, is, is that we're, we're not necessarily um, going to have ever, hey, if it happens, I'm, I'm all good, but we're not necessarily ever going to have a candidate that checks off every single issue that we care about. But what we'll have, okay, is we'll have the opportunity to seek God's face and do what he's laid on our heart to do. So there's something to think here that you need to understand. One, I don't care who you vote for. I mean, I literally could not care less who you vote for. I don't need you to tell me. I don't plan on asking you. That probably makes some of you irritated. Some of you really wish that I would care who you vote for and that I would tell other people who they're supposed to vote for. First of all, I can't do it. It's illegal. It's illegal. Can't do it. Okay. Second of all, okay. Um, if you want to tell me and you want to know who I'm, it's not a secret. Um, I'll tell you privately. You come ask me, and I'll let you know who I'm voting for. But I don't care who you're voting for. But here's what I do care. Here's what you can't get around. I do care that you can honestly say when you cast your vote that your Christian faith has determined your priorities. I care about that as your pastor. Who you choose is not my issue. The fact that you can tell me honestly that your Christian faith has determined your voting practices, that's what I care about. See here, we've got to, we've got to get past, as we start today, we're just going to get past something. You can be a Christian and not be a Republican. Throw things at me later if you need to. That's why we didn't pass out tomatoes when you came in today. You can be a Christian and not be a Republican. Okay? You can be a Christian and be a Democrat. It's possible. Okay? You can be a Christian and be neither. Being a Christian is bigger than politics. Okay? So I don't care who you vote for. And as we go through this today, as we go through what God has to say about priorities, okay, that will help us figure out how we should vote, Here's what's important. What's important is for you to figure out that it matters to God how you vote and that what matters is that your priorities line with his. For me, that means one of the, one of the biggest priorities that I always deal with when it comes to an election. This is not a secret if you know me, um, if we've had any kind of conversation, but for me, one of the priorities always is abortion. Okay, again, if you've had an abortion, I'm not mad at you. Okay? You're not condemned because of that, but I read in God's word clearly that that's not acceptable, okay? that that's not what he wants. Okay? And so therefore, for me, that's always high on my priority list. For others of you, you may have other things high on your priority list. That's okay too, as long as they matter to God. We're going to get into this today, and I hope as we get into this that you'll see some of how this works out. Uh, Jesus, uh, in a part of Matthew, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, 
called the Beatitudes, gives us a list. He gives us 10 things to drill down on. Uh, actually, I'm sorry, eight things to drill down on here as we go of characteristics that should matter to Christians. Okay, we'll start just with, with verses one and two here and see what it says. It says, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This is the beginning now of this grand sermon on the mount. This is the beginning of the context. And this tells us that um, this is for believers. Okay, this is for believers. This is not just random teachings, cool sayings that Jesus said. Not just, hey, you know, there was a good teacher in the Bible and he said some things. No, this is when you believe in Jesus, when you are following Jesus, when you are a disciple. See, it's not just the crowd, it's the disciples. A crowd is someone that thinks Jesus is pretty cool, right? He says some cool stuff. I'd like to get close enough to him so I can hear some things he said. Maybe I'll want to tweet him out, tell everybody, you know, hey, I'm hanging out with Jesus today, Right? Um, a little bit like we might have done if we went to see Donald Trump when he was here in Cedar Rapids or um, Hillary Clinton back when she was hanging out at the Skate Center, wherever she went, I don't know, right? We're like, okay, well, I'm close enough to hear what they have to say, but this is no. Jesus says, look, he goes and he sits down, his disciples, his followers, not the people that want to be close enough, but the people that want to go where he goes. They come and they sit down and he teaches them. So something to know about the Beatitudes. One, they're a code of ethics for believers. Standard of living for Christians. As we go through these, if you're not growing in these, if you're not growing in some of these Beatitudes, um, you need to go ahead and have a conversation with God about why that is. Perhaps you need to repent of the fact that you're not growing in these godly characteristics that Jesus is putting out. And they're saying, look, these are the people that are blessed. This is what Christianity looks like. They provide an excellent contrast between kingdom values. That's biblical, eternal values, and worldly values, which are temporary. The other thing these beatitudes do is, is they, they, they contrast the superficial faith of the crowd that wants to be close enough, but not too close with the real kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. And I'm going to be honest with you, if you thought that you could be a Christian and have that real kind of faith that Jesus is looking for, and you thought that it would never have to impact the way that you vote or the policies that you support, then you were making a mistake. Because Jesus asked for total surrender. And we've talked about this earlier in the series. Um, you have a higher calling, right? You, you don't... You don't live here. Remember, we've talked about that. You're stationed here. We read that in 2 Corinthians 5. You are an ambassador, okay? You were stationed here in this country, and it is a cherry gig. We've got freedoms. We've got safety. We've got security. We've got all kinds of things that Christians that were stationed somewhere else don't have. Talk to a missionary. They'll understand that better than anybody else. But this is the reality. We have, a, we have a higher calling. And so as we get into this here, hopefully you'll see how this all plays out. Let's continue. Matthew 3. Blessed then, this is the first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as we get into this, we're going to see a little bit... Um, how this works. And so this person, this, this person that's poor in spirit, this is somebody who can not only admit their strengths, but you know what? They can talk about their weaknesses. 
They don't have to always act like they are the best and they are the clearest and they are the best at everything that they do. This person understands that they're not better than others. Someone that's poor in spirit does not put themselves above other people, right? Someone that's poor in spirit doesn't always have to have their way. Someone that's poor in spirit um, admits, they readily admit that they need God. They need forgiveness from God. Someone that's poor in spirit um, isn't concerned with what they do or don't have, and this person that's poor in spirit is willing to share freely what they do have. You can contrast that with, with the, world, the world's thinking that's pride, self-importance. When I walk into the room, I'm the most important person in the room, and everybody needs to know it, and everybody needs to acknowledge it. So when we think about voting, when we think about those things, we, we think that, you know what, what we're looking for, we're voting, and, and we need to be poor in spirit, and we're looking for candidates that are poor in spirit. And if you can find that in some of our candidates, then let's have that conversation because you know something I don't know. I haven't seen it yet, but this is what we're looking for. This is what we strive for. We continue. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Right? Those who mourn, are, are, we're not talking about people that walk around crying all the time. Listen, you probably know some of those people. You're like, hey, it's 78 degrees, zero humidity, the sun is shining, the sky is blue, clouds, everything is perfect. And like, yeah, but it's going to rain four days from now. We're not talking about that person. Okay, that's not what it means um, for those that mourn, right? These are people that understand when others are upset. They mourn with you, right? They support others that are going through things. These are people that see problems, injustice, issues in the world, and they're compelled to act. Who's the last time, for many of you, I'm sure it was just the last time you turned on the news, right? But we turn on the news and we see issues like um, sex trafficking, homelessness, poverty, wanton violence. When we're those that mourn, those things break our hearts. And that's a call from God. If those things don't break your heart, then that needs to be a check in your spirit. And politically speaking, when those things break our heart, then we need to vote and support policies accordingly. We continue. Blessed are those who... Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Remember, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is restrained strength. Okay? So people who refuse to get their way by using physical verbal, emotional violence, people that refuse to get their way by coercion or manipulation. Those people are meek. And when you have your own personal debates, you got to be really, really careful not to try to make others feel foolish or less than because they disagree with you, even if you know you're right. It's not a trait of meekness to be willing to hear people that you disagree with. I'm sorry, it's not a trait of meekness to be unwilling to hear people that you disagree with. But when you're meek, 
okay? You're willing to have that discussion. Um, yeah, well, well, we'll get into this a little bit more here in a minute. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they'll be filled. These are people that defend and stick up for and rally for and campaign for and worry about in policy people um, that are being treated unfairly. And you can, you can plug in whatever category of person that is, okay? You can figure out who exactly it is that's being treated unfairly, but you and I both know that there are pockets of people in this country and across the world that are being treated unfairly. I've already told you about one of my hot-button issues happens to be abortion. Since abortion was legalized, we've had about 55 million of those in this country. To me, that counts as being treated unfairly. But certainly that's not the only one. And, and that may be important to you, but you may have others that are equally important to you that God's laid on your heart. Okay? But when we hunger and thirst for righteousness... Listen, it's not lip service. I mean, we hunger and thirst for God's rightness, for people that are mistreated and people that are downtrodden and the people that God cares about. And oh, guess what? God cares about them all. Immigrants, refugees, unborn, those in poverty, those that are fatherless, those that are orphaned, those that are widowed, God cares about them all. And if you're growing, and if you're going to stand and, and, and make a fuss about political things, then you know what? You need to care for them all too. We continue, 5-7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, <laughs> this is a difficult one um, anytime you get into politics. I tell you what, if you ever find a candidate that acts mercifully, someone to look twice at. Okay, because these are people that are willing to show mercy and forgive when someone does something that they don't like. This is a person who can put past behind us, right? The, you, you flip it around to the, the cultural context there is we don't forgive people unless they've earned it, unless they ask for it, and we feel like it. If, if, they, if they ask for it and they've earned it and we feel like it, we may choose to forgive and move on. But that's not what God says. God says, blessed are the merciful because they'll be shown mercy. They have been shown mercy. Therefore, as a natural byproduct of that, they pour it out on other people. That should be important to us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. These are people that are committed to doing good. Someone that's pure in heart um, you never have to worry about their intentions. You might not support their plan. I might not support everything that you say or every idea you come up with, but if I trust that you're pure in heart, I never have to worry about your intentions. See, that's where in the church, boy, we should, we should be able to deal with conflict and problems pretty easily, pretty quickly, right? Because if you know my heart and trust my heart, and I know your heart, and I trust your heart, and we sit down and have a dialogue, we may ultimately not agree on what we're going to do next, but we know that our intentions are right. That's how it works as the elders sit down. 
just, just so you know how that works when the elders get it. You know, when we say, well, the elders are, 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 have unity moving forward in something. When I say the elders have unity moving forward in something, um, sometimes that means we all are very much like-minded and we all, like, first shot, we're like, yeah, that's perfect, let's do that. Oftentimes what that means, though, is that as we sat down at the table, we had different ideas, different understandings, but as we had discussion, and I heard somebody's heart, and somebody heard my heart, and somebody else's heart, and they were all saying something different, but they're all moving in a direction, and as we talk, and we pray, and we come together, then we all move in the same way, because we trust the intention. That's what God's saying here, saying, that's what Jesus is saying here. He said, listen, blessed are the pure in heart, those that treat people well and that are good-intentioned. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The world's broken. The world isn't going to get fixed anytime soon. There's only one solution ultimately for the world, and that's the return of Jesus Christ. And we long for it. And I said it wasn't going to come soon. What, what do I know? Like, wait for it. Okay, well, not right this second, but hopefully soon. We pray for it. We read that in Revelations. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But that is the only thing that is ultimately going to fix this mess. No matter what happens, it's not going to get better. The world is decaying. However, we are salt. We are a preserving agent for a dying world. And God says when you grow as a peacemaker, that will pay off. You'll be blessed. The world will be blessed. Be a peacemaker. And you know what? When we vote for politicians, we need politicians, whether they're Christians or not, that understand that it's important to be a peacemaker. We continue. We get to this, Matthew 5.10 said, Blessed are those who persecute you. Uh, I'm sorry, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's what we need too. We need politicians. As individuals, we need to be this, especially in the climate that we live in, as rules shift and change. But as we think about voting, we need this as well. We need politicians who will handle being persecuted for righteousness sake. This means people that are less interested in being elected and more interested in right and wrong. This means people that are, that are less interested in wavering on key social issues because I'm talking to this group today and I need their support and I'm talking to this group tomorrow and I need their support. But instead what we're looking for are people who will staunchly stand by what is right because it's right. Even if that means eventually they don't end up in office. Or if eventually they lose out on um, a re-election or something like that. We're looking for people who won't waver for righteousness sake. Okay, so that's the beatitude. That was really quick. Listen, I'll do it longer some other time, but we just want to get through these really quick so we can answer the questions. Okay, and so here's the thing. So we say, Matt... Uh, this is the question I've been given a lot, by the way, in the box. Speaking of, we still got two weeks left. If you've got other questions, fill them out, throw them in the box back here. We'll, we'll get to those as we work through this. Those that we don't get to, uh, we'll answer in another context if we have too many. But here's the questions that have ended up in the box. It's Matt, um, how do I... That, 
That's the one. How do I decide who to vote for? Okay, one of them said, Matt, tell me who to vote for. It didn't say Matt, it just said, who should I vote for? I can't tell you who to vote for, okay? I can tell you privately who I'm voting for. I can't tell you who you should vote for. What I can tell you, though, is that if you are growing in those Beatitudes, if you are growing to be like Christ, okay, and you understand his priorities, that can inform who you vote for. Then you can say my Christian worldview impacts my political behavior and you can mean it. That's what God wants from you. And so I can't tell you who to vote for. Here's what I can tell you. Okay, I can answer these other questions, I think, that you've asked. These were the, these were the, the sub-questions to that. Who do I vote for? How do I decide who to vote for? And then here's the sub-questions. One of them, is it okay to vote for the lesser of two evils? You hear that so much, this election especially, that my option is bad and worse. With all due respect to anybody that likes our options, you're in the minority. I mean, you, you just are. I had a very lengthy, yet somewhat pleasant, yet not so much, <laughs> political debate with my mother, okay? Um, just uh, Thursday night, I went, I was going to a Cubs game on Friday, go Cubs, um, with, with my dad and my brother, and so I went there to spend the night, Thursday night, and um, happened to be that the Democratic National Convention was on, um, and we were watching things. I hate that stuff. I don't care what convention it is, because everybody's nasty, right? Nobody can just say, Here, here's what I think, and here's why you should vote for me, and then they call it good. It's like, well, here's what I think, and here's why that person is crazy, and then you should vote for me, because I don't like any of it, okay? But a healthy debate on whether or not really this is um, a real election. Because if you're really voting for the lesser of two evils, then you're not really electing anybody. You're just running away from somebody else. And that, that part of the discussion there, it's like, it's like I'm not really voting for this person. I'm not voting for that person. Okay, and I don't really want this person to be president, but I just can't fathom that person. And, and I get the thinking, and I get the thinking, but I want to challenge you on this. You're always voting for the lesser of two evils. So you understand that when it comes to politics, you're always voting for the lesser of two evils, and you're always voting for the lesser of two evils because none of them is Jesus Christ. You want to support the perfect, then you submit to Jesus, and then everything else falls out where it will. Listen, if you're listening to this, if you're here this morning, and you're not submitted to Jesus then you put politics aside and you drill down on Jesus because he is the only perfect one that you get to follow. His is the only platform that's always right. His is the only thing where you ever say, you know what? Yes, absolutely. And you know what? Here's the thing. Because he's perfect, he may say something and you may say, well, but mm, Jesus, I'm not sure I like that. Guess what? Get on board. You can just get on board because it's Jesus. But outside of submission to Jesus, listen, there is nothing perfect for you to vote for ever. You're always choosing between the lesser of two evils because there's no perfect candidate. This election is no different. 
So the idea of I can't really vote, which is something that, that people have said to me is, well, I don't feel like I can really vote this year. Like I have to sit this one out. I have to sit it out because I can't support either candidate because neither one is, is perfect. They never are. They never are. What we have to do is we have to figure out what God's priorities are, what he's called us to be passionate about, what he cares deeply about, and we have to decide who's the right choice based on that. It's always the lesser of two evils. The other question was this. Um, if I'm voting for the lesser of two evils, am I responsible for the evil that they do? Let's say, for example, that I vote for Walter Mondale. He ran for something once, right? Okay. Let's say that I vote for Walter Mondale. Walter Mondale gets elected. Walter Mondale will do some good things. I will get to say, nailed it. I voted for that guy. He did some good things. My choice. But he'll do some things that aren't so great too. Every politician does. When he does things that aren't so great, is that on me? That's a legitimate question people want to know. It's like in this candidate, when both are bad choices, if I vote for one of them who does something unbiblical, am I on the hook in God's eyes for that unbiblical thing that happens? Because I supported that person being president or being senator or being congressman or being mayor or whatever. I supported that person. And so am I on the hook in God's eyes for something evil that they may do? And I'm going to tell you that I firmly believe the answer is no. And I firmly believe that the answer is no, as long as you are voting someone because you understand the priorities that God has established to be, and the priorities that you then share to be the best possible choice, to do the most possible good. So no, I don't believe you're on the hook for mistakes that candidates make, because we know if that were the case, we would never vote because nobody's Jesus. And the last thing there was the question of, um, what do we do with a third-party candidate? Is it appropriate to vote for a third-party candidate that we know can't win, right? So in a sense, we say, well, it's like a wasted vote, right? Because I know they can't win, but I'm not having to support either of, of these two options that I don't like. This one is a better option. It's a more biblical option. So is it wrong for me to put my vote there even though I know ultimately it won't amount to anything? And I'll say, you know what? I don't know. That's a, that's a personal thing. Here, here's what it comes down to. Um, in a sense, in this immediate election, your vote will not help determine who wins the election. The other thing about that that you must consider, I'm not saying right, wrong, or otherwise, I'm just saying something that you must think about, is that typically a third-party candidate splits a vote not from down the middle, but a third-party candidate splits a vote from one side or the other. So what happens is when you and enough people choose to throw their support behind a third-party candidate, you're basically handing an election to the other person. Okay? Not that that's wrong, Okay? There still may be times that you decide a third-party candidate is the most biblical option, but there's things that you need to consider. The other thing about that is this. 
When you vote for a third-party candidate, though, if enough people do that because of a certain platform or positions or God's priorities that they support, when you do that, what you may be communicating to the rest of the political party is, yeah, I'm not going to get my way this time, but it's time for you to take us seriously because enough of us care about these issues that we're putting our support here. So there's, a, again, I get, I get all the answers on both sides. If you're going to ask me, okay, you can ask me this question, I think. I don't think I'm breaking any laws. Uh, Matt, are you going to vote for a third-party candidate? Um, I'm going to tell you that I doubt it. And I doubt it, especially in an election cycle like this, because of what's at stake. Okay, and you don't have to take my word for this, but what's at stake is Supreme Court nominations. And so I would encourage you, go back, get on your phone later. You can do it now if you really want to, but Google it some other time and just, just you know, Supreme Court nominations and 2016 elections and see what comes up. And I think what you'll find is that anywhere from one to four in the next four to eight year nominations are plausible, if not expected. That's a big deal. Okay. So those are things that you need to think about as it comes to this. All right. So who do you vote for? Well, you set your priorities and you decide. Now, here are a couple of things I need you to know about. Here are the priorities that I've got. I think these are biblical. I think they're rooted in scripture. You may rank them in different order. You may have something else, and it's okay as long as it continues to come down to what God has to say. But you decide who to vote for based on what your biblical priorities are and then what candidate supports them. And you'll have to decide. If this candidate supports your number one biblical priority but nothing else, and this candidate doesn't support your number one biblical priority but supports the next three, you could be justified in voting for either one, okay? So please, please, please don't make the assumption that somebody that's not voting your way is ignoring what God has to say. It's not true. As long as they're rooted in God's priorities and they're using that as a basis for decision-making, they're fine. Number one priority is this. The Bible gives guidance, okay? Uh, now, we know there from 2 Timothy that all scripture is inspired, uh, but the Bible is the authoritative word of God. It's good for faith and practice, and therefore, listen to this, if the Bible tells us that it's good, it's inspiration, and it directs our faith and practice, listen to me. You cannot have a position. I'm going to challenge you on this. This one I'm going to say absolutely firmly. Let's talk about it if you disagree. You cannot have a position politically. You may cons- give concession to a position politically because your other options are better, but, but you cannot hold a position politically that God doesn't hold. You can't be contrary to God when it comes to politics. For example, I'm going to keep drilling down on this one because this is on my priority list. This is up high. When it comes to abortion, right? You can't say, well, I know I know what God says about life and that it's precious and that um, it's wrong to murder. We read that in the Ten Commandments. We, you know, we know these things. I can't say, well, I know that's important, but I just don't think it's important. You, you see what I'm saying? You, you can't say, well, I know what God says. I know that God cares about this deeply and he's passionate about it. And, and, and it's one of the Ten Commandments for Pete's sake. I mean, it's in there. But... I don't have a problem if somebody wants to get an abortion. Who am I to tell them what to do? Where I would challenge you is that if the Bible is actually 
the inspired word of God, and that it is actually good. This is in our statement of faith, the blessed hope, that the Bible is authoritative for, for faith and practice, meaning that we use it for the way that we act, that the Bible informs our behavior. Well, if that's the case, then it has to inform us politically on the positions that we support. Okay? I say abortion, and some of you are like, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. You know what? It has to inform things about immigration. It has to inform things about refugees also, about homelessness and poverty, some things that maybe we're not so excited to agree with. Two, our highest loyalty always is to Jesus. When it comes to this, your highest loyalty always is to Jesus. And I want you to understand something. That means your loyalty to Jesus comes before your loyalty to America. Your loyalty to Jesus comes before your loyalty to your family's safety. Your loyalty to Jesus comes before your economic well-being. Your loyalty to Jesus trumps your tax code. Loyalty to Jesus comes first. You need to understand that when you go to vote. It's not just about what makes me comfortable, safe, and secure. It's what would Jesus be supporting here. God created everyone in his image. We know that. God creates everyone in his image, and so politically we support policies, right? We support policies that get that people have innate, inherent value because they are made in the image of God. Not just the people that I know and care about in my circle, but we support policies that demonstrate that everyone from the unborn all the way up to the aged, that all of them have inherent value because they are made in the image of God. Here's another priority. You're called to love God, and you're called to love your neighbor. And if you'll remember in the story of the Good Samaritan, your neighbor is going to be somebody that you don't like, oftentimes. So you're called to not just deal with that person, you're called to love that person. That is a command from God. And when I'm voting and when I'm supporting policies, when I'm supporting politicians because they line up right with me on a number of things or on my key things or whatever it is, I need to choose with this in mind that people that understand that everyone is made in the image of God and that I am called to love them even if I don't like them. Here's another priority. Micah 6.8. God says to the people, I've already told you. They're like, God, what do you want us to do? And he's like, I already told you what to do. <laughs> it's not complicated. Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly. It's not complicated at all. And so when we get involved politically, this has to be a priority for us. We need to support policies that are about justice, real justice, that are about mercy, and people that are rooted in humility. Oh, for the love. We need to uphold righteousness. Bible tells us to be holy because I'm holy. Listen, when you um, seek righteousness, basically what you're saying is that God's standard is the standard. 
okay? Live as God's obedient children. Be holy in everything because God's holy. Pursue the common good for all. Go and do likewise. This is what Jesus says. Um, they ask, who's my neighbor? He tells them the story of the Good Samaritan, and he says, this is the deal. You go out there and do the same. Many policies that are about pursuing the common good for all, not just for me, not just for my family, but for all. And we fight for religious freedom. Now, here's one you're not going to find in Scripture, and I'll readily admit that. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to find a verse or a text or an idea about religious freedom. You're not going to see it in there, but it still will continue to be one of my biggest priorities when it comes time to vote. And the reason for that is because, you know what is in Scripture, what is a priority in Scripture? Is telling the truth about Jesus. The Bible commands me to tell the truth about Jesus. I do that freely here in this country more than people in other countries do because I have the freedom to do so. So in order for me to continue to have the freedom for do so, religious freedom is high on my list. But I want to caution you about religious freedom. You're going to hear a lot of things about religious freedom when it comes to elections, and I want you to be smart enough to be able to discern what's being said. You're never going to hear a candidate that tells you religious freedom is a bad idea. Okay? The way that laws are written, though, for religious freedom, the way that they're being interpreted and the way that they're being done is that religious freedom now is limited to what is um, free for you to do as long as it doesn't interfere with the common good. Okay, I'll give you a very quick example of that. So we would say radical Islam, okay, under just blanket freedom of religion, they would say, well, you know what, you want to go ahead and you want to, um, you know, have bomb this marketplace, uh, well, you're free to do so, right? Your religion says this is what I need to do, therefore you go do it. And so what we understand is, well, freedom, to relig freedom of religion can't trump common good, Right? Okay, freedom of religion can't take away the individual rights of somebody else. They can't trump the common good. So I can't use my freedom of religion to go ahead and justify blowing you up. And that's the statement that'll be made. And we'll say, well, that makes sense. We're on board with that. Yep. Okay. And we'll move on. What you need to ask is what does common good mean? You need to be careful about that. You need to be able to ask, what does the common good really mean? In, in a statement that says, well, yes, I believe in freedom of religion as long as it doesn't challenge the common good, we say, okay, well, that's great. What do you mean by common good? For example, in the state of Iowa, there is now a court case pending. There's a lawsuit pending between a church in Des Moines and the Iowa Civil Liberties Union. And the lawsuit basically is this. Is it common good? Does it violate the common good for a church to stand up and say, no? We won't have that here. We won't allow that here. And the argument is no. Okay, obviously the church says, no, that doesn't violate the common good. That's the freedom to practice religion. And the civil liberties union says, well, yeah, that's fine as long as you're having like a church meeting. But if it's something that's open to the public, like, oh, I don't know, everything a church does, then it's... It, it, it's not for the common good for you to be able to say no. See, so it's not quite as simple as, oh yeah, freedom of religion is a good thing, yet we support it. Everybody will say they support it, but part of what you have to do is be able to drill down on what does that really mean? 
Okay? Now, here's the deal. All of that is fine and good, and some of you are like, okay, well, that's good information to have, and some of you are very angry. You're like, Matt, you promised that I'd know who to vote for by the end of this morning. No, I didn't. What I told you is that God has a plan to help you decide who you vote for. And here's what it comes down to. You need to spend time. You need to spend time in God's word, and you need to spend time praying, and I'm going to give you this first step. The first thing you need to do is you need to come down with a piece of paper and a pencil or on your phone or your tablet or your computer or whatever it is you do, and you need to make a list. What, are, what do I think are God's priorities? What are the number one priorities? Okay? Because I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you that oftentimes... I ignore a lot of things, red flags when it comes to voting, because I think it hits my one or two priorities that I think God agrees with. And other times, it doesn't work that way. But you have to decide, what are your priorities? You need to talk to God about this. You need to find out. And if you've got a priority on your list, if you write down your priorities and you can't find legitimately something in Scripture to say that this should be my priority, then get it off your list. It's become a preference, not a priority. Your preferences are great, and democracy is wonderful, and it's a great way to have some of our preferences met, but your preferences never trump the priorities that God gives you when it comes time to decide. You make your list, and if it's a preference, then you move it down, or you get rid of it, or you acknowledge what it is. Too many of us are too passionate about preferences and not priorities, but God has given us priorities for a living that we need to get behind. I tell you what, we're going to ask the praise team to come up and we're going to prepare to close this out. And there's a couple things I'm going to ask you to do. One is make that list. Make your list of priorities. I'm curious, if you make that list of your biblical priorities, the things that you rank, you know what? I wouldn't mind seeing it. If you decide to make that list, send it to me. Because you know what? I think that would benefit other people here at the church to be able to see that. We can share that without putting your name on it, but we can, we can find ways to do that without saying, well, this is what Mark Johnson says are his priorities. We can just share these as, here are some other people's biblical priorities, because some of us struggle with this. Some of us know the Bible better than others. Some of us struggle with what does God really say about this issue. If you've got a question about that, if you're saying, man, I think this is a priority, but, but what does God really say about it? Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. But it's time to get serious about this. We don't have a lot of time left in this election. And whatever hard work we do this time around, you know what? It's only going to make it easier the next times that we do this. Okay? So discover what your priorities are. Share them with other people that might benefit from knowing that. Find out more. Ask yourself honestly, am I supporting a candidate that's got the best biblical priorities? Does that mean they're a Christian? No, not necessarily. I can tell you this because it's over with. I voted for Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's not a Christian. But when I looked at his list of priorities, he had the most biblical priorities. There were a lot of things there I didn't like. But when it came to biblical priorities, that stole my vote. When I looked over here, there weren't enough biblical priorities to steal my vote. See, we have to start to understand this that way. You don't have to agree with me, but you have to have gone through the process. And are you ready? Here's the question for you. Are you ready to defend your choice to God? Not to me. 
You don't have to, I don't even need to know who, you can tell me who you vote for if you want, but you don't have to. It's private. You go into one of those little booths like Dick did there in the video, right? But are you ready to defend your choice to God? Okay? Doesn't mean you vote the same way I do. We can both vote differently. We can both defend our choice to God, and God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm convinced of that. But you better be able to say, God, here's why I chose this candidate, because these are your principles and priorities that I felt like were best served this way. This is his world. We owe him allegiance. Everything we do is because God has given us a mission. What's our mission? We talked about this week, one of this series. We are agents of reconciliation. We are ministers of grace. We are ambassadors for Christ. We speak to a world. We talk for God when we say, come back to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we just, this is a conundrum and it's confusing. And there's no easy way to figure it out, but God, there is a pathway. There is a way that we can start to understand that our votes, no matter what they might be, um, that, that as we look to see where our priorities line up, that we can feel confident and comfortable with the person that we choose because we know that they'll honor you the best. Not perfectly, none of us do, and certainly none of these candidates do, but, but in ways that, that, that acknowledge you. We vote in ways that make you Lord of our life, Lord of the world. This belongs to you, and when we vote, it honors you. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask you to give us wisdom that we don't have, discernment that we shouldn't possess. We ask you to give us um, grace upon grace as we try to figure out what it is that would honor you the most. And Father, ultimately, we trust you. Our candidates win, awesome. Our candidates lose, that's okay, because you are in control. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen.